Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word and to examine it. We ask your Holy Spirit to guide and lead us as we look at what you would have us to learn from all of this and that you will teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he said, I have heard you in, in a time accepted, in a day of salvation, I have succored you. Behold, now is that accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in affliction, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet all away rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. All right, we get Paul given a whole long list of, list of qualities and things here, so we're gonna stop there and start looking at a few of these says, for we, as workers together with him, beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. So this is Paul talking to him and, and those that are ministering with him said, we're the workers, the, the ministers, the ones who are taking care of God's business. We beseech you. And I like this one. It says, call alongside of. When they, when they use the word beseech, they're saying, come along beside us as we go and do, do something. And sometimes we'll, we'll work on beseeching other Christians. You know, would you, you know, listen to what God says, or would you come and help me do this? And we call people apart, and that's beseeching, asking or begging of something. They receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, I've given a simple definition for grace to you most of the time, and that's getting what you don't receive, uh, deserve. But I want to read you the more full version of this, so you might want to be paying attention to this. The merciful kindness where, by which God, exerting his holy influence on the soul, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to exercise of the Christian virtues. Now, I want to break that word down for you a little bit, okay? Grace. All right, he's getting everything we don't deserve, but basically it says God's merciful kindness. He, not gives, he doesn't give us what we deserve in kindness. That by which God exerts his holy influence on a soul. God basically says, I'm going to influence where you're going to go and upon our, on our very soul. That's his grace. He works on us on the internal basis. This is why I say we have God in us who changes us. And that's what this, this is what it's saying, and, and that he exerts his influence on us. All right? And it says he turns, uh, he turns us to Christ. All right? The more he exerts his influence on us, the more we turn to Christ because he's living in us. And he keeps us 
he protects us, in other words. He strengthens us. He gives the ability and, and strength to do things. And he turns them to Christ. God indwells us, and he turns us to Christ and makes it so that we can live out <laughs> our faith. Because we can't live out our faith without God being the one that allows us to live out our faith. Remember, we've quoted this verse, I can do nothing without Christ, but in Christ I can do all things. All right, and this is what the grace is all about. And it says he increases their Christian faith and their knowledge and their affection and kindles them to do Christian virtues. All right, so he increases our faith. He increases our knowledge. This is when we get into the Word and we, we have the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden the Bible starts to make sense to us when we read it as opposed to when we're lost and we can't understand a word that we're reading. And then he says their affection, their love for one another, and then he kindles them to exercise Christian virtues. Much of what Paul's going to talk about in this chapter uh, when he goes all these long by, <laughs> you know, all these different things and Paul keeps bringing all these things together that we're to love one another, to build up one another, to edify one another, to be patient, to endure, to have forbearance, and you know all these different things. And you know one of my favorite words in the scripture is forbearance. And forbearance means to give up my right to demand the punishment for somebody. Okay, when somebody wrongs us, we have the right to say, God, I want them punished and you know, I want them to you know, go to jail or whatever it might be. And forbearance says, God, I'm putting them in your hands. You do what you want with them. I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to require that they pay. You know, God, they, they insulted me, but I'm not going to require that they pay for that insult. God, it's in your hands. That's forbearance. I give up my right to say, you just wait. You hurt me, I'm going to make sure that you suffer. And that's a fleshly attitude. It's not a spiritual attitude. And God says, I want you to forbear one another, just as he forbears with us to, to a great point where he all, all of a sudden he gets to the end of his patience and says, okay, no more. And there is a time when we don't forbear. If somebody's going to continually do evil to us, especially the same evil, there comes a point where we say, God, go get them. David, David gave precatory prayers all the time. You know, David was very good. Go, go get them, God. <laughs> you know, they've hurt me. They've hurt my people. They've hurt your people. Go get them. Uh, as Christians, that's not supposed to be our first and primary prayer. Okay. Uh, but he says that you receive not God's grace in vain, empty, uh, destitute of any value, spiritual value. And this one is not just the empty. This word for vain literally means somebody who's destitute of spiritual value who proclaims that they're a Christian and yet does not have the fruit of the Spirit. This is what he's talking about, those kind of people. And we all know people who, you know, you, they say they're Christians and you go, you know, I see no fruit in your life, I'm not so sure. That's what he's saying. That's the word he's using here in vain. Those people that go, oh, you say you're a Christian. I don't see any love, joy, peace, you know, long-suffering, I don't see any of the fruit of the Spirit in you. That doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means they're not producing the fruit. They're living a vain lifestyle. Now, they are probably not saved either, but we can't make that, deci that decision. 
You know, if you've known them for many, many, many years, you might be able to say, okay, I've known you for eight years and I've never seen you <laughs> with the fruit of the Spirit or I've known you all my life <laughs> or all your life and I've never seen the fruit of the Spirit. Then you might be able to say, probably not saved. But if you know somebody and you haven't known them your whole life, you're never going to be able to say, well, I don't know. You know uh, I know people who say they got saved when they were a teenager. I didn't know them when they were a teenager, so I can't say whether they were saved or not. That's between them and God. But you look at them in this point and say, where's the fruit of the Spirit? Now, do you have love for anybody? Do you desire to follow God? Do you have a desire to read his word? Do you have a desire to be with his people? You know, no? Well, then are you really a Christian? That's for them to decide, you know, was those words real? Was it a real event? Or was it just, you know, oh, all my friends went forward to say this prayer, so I went forward with them and, and uh, you know, I just said a bunch of words and they didn't, didn't mean anything. And this is something to be, be aware of. But in verse 2 it says, and this is a parenthesis. Paul just kind of throws this in. It really has very little to do with the rest of the, the chapter and it's just kind of thrown in here. For he has said, I have heard you in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have succored you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He is referring back to uh, Isaiah 49.8, and he's quoting just a small portion of that verse, and he's not even quoting the whole parts of it, but he says, Isaiah says, now is the time, the accepted time, and now is the salvation of God been revealed. And here Paul is saying, this is that time. This is the time that Isaiah was talking about. And let's just read that verse in Isaiah. And Isaiah 49.8 says, Thus saith the Lord, in the accepted time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you, I will give you for a covenant to, of the people, the established, to establish the earth, to cause, the inheritance, cause to inherit the desolate heritage. And Paul says, this is that time. Jesus has died. And God is calling you to be his children. This is that accepted time. And Paul does this a lot. He just kind of throws in a verse. And he's, he's really laying out, we are his workers. We're, we've got grace. And by the way, this is that time that God was talking about. You, especially Jews, have been waiting for this time for the kingdom to come. This is it. This is that time. And he just throws that verse out there. Paul, probably having studied under Gamaliel, knew it, and he quotes from them all the time, so it seems that he really did. But just because he was a Pharisee does not mean that he had studied the, the uh, prophets. Well, he was a Pharisee of, of Pharisees. I mean, he, yeah, he, he, was very knowledge, he was very knowledgeable. He was a, we would call him a type A personality from everything. We, he was hard driven. He was, what he did, he did well. Uh, which got him into the number, the best teacher in his day, which is the number three of all time, Jewish teachers. And you did not get to be with the best teacher unless you were one of the best students. So he was driven. Now, whether it was his parents that helped drive him or him, it seems like he himself was a very driven person. Nothing, nothing deterred him, none of the trials, none of the tribulations. Says, God has called me to do this. This is what I'm going to do and nothing stopped him. So we would, in our day, in uh, way of calling him, we'd say he was a type A personality. 
He was a driven personality. Nothing would stop him from getting something done. The earlier we get started into seeking after God, the better. But again, like everybody said, we can't go back. All we can do is stay, okay, I messed up. I messed up this part of my life. Now I'm going to go forward from this part of my life. And God can recover that. And you know, the good news is, even if we totally mess up decades of our life, God can still catch us up if we'll turn our hearts over because he's the one that teaches. He's the one that teaches because I spent a lot of years studying the Bible, but as I've said, many of these things I memorized when I was 15, 16 years old, 14 years old, are only now starting to really mean something to me in the last decade and last decade and a half of, of my life. You know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, I, I memorized that verse and I never really understood it. Right, and that's what I found with Galatians 2.20, which is now one of my favorite verses because I never understood the real power of that verse until about 15 years ago. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live, I live according to the faith of Christ Jesus who saved me. Okay, but crucified. I am crucified. You know, he's crucifying my flesh so that I can live. You know, and it, it has become such a powerful verse, and it's a very short verse, very easy verse, but yet it's one that had never really meant a whole lot to me when I first memorized it. Galatians 2.20. All right, verse 3. So we left this parenthesis, and he says, you know, you've, so I beseech you that you also receive not the grace of God in vain, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Yeah. And he's basically, he's talking to ministers at this point, and to Christians in general, but specifically ministers, giving no offense, no occasion for a stumbling block. And this is something especially older Christians can become stumbling blocks for younger Christians, because when we get liberty and grace to be able to do something, sometimes the younger Christian looks and says, how can you do that? You know, because they're stuck under the law. They're stuck under rule-based relationship with God because that's where you start. When you first get saved, you usually start with a very rule-based. You know, I'm going to live by God and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Yeah, and not do these other things. And you start out with a kind of a very rule-based, ritualistic way of thinking. And then over time, you're going, you know what? God's given me the liberty to do th certain things and he gives me the restrictions on other things that I can't do. And we need to be careful because sometimes if we, as we mature, we get to, God allows us to do certain things or doesn't stop us from doing certain things. And others look like, well, how can you do that? Good example when Paul was talking to the Corinthians about going to the temple and buying meat offered to the idols. He goes, okay, you, you older Christians, you're realizing that, that that idol is just a hunk of metal or a hunk of wood, and then anything offered in front of it doesn't mean anything, and you have no problem eating the meat. But if it offends your younger, your younger Christian brother because he just stopped worshiping the idol and turned to God, and he still is struggling with this idea of that meat that went, you know, went before the, you know, what he used to worship for years, and he realizes it's not a God, but, you know, have you ever been in a place where you know something is true and yet you can't get your actions really around it? You know what the Bible says, says it's bad or not, and yet you can't really get to it. And that's what he's saying. These guys, they're saved. They've walked away from their idol, but in their mind, they're still struggling. That, that idol they worshiped for years 
they're struggling with, you know, the meat's offered to that idol that it's special and, you know, you're not supposed to eat it and they're struggling with it and that might make them stumble. He goes, if you're around that brother or sister that's going to stumble because of that, don't eat the meat. Okay? He's telling them, you know, you may be able to drink alcohol in your, in, with not, without being under con- conviction of it, but don't do it if it's going to cause a younger brother or sister to fall because you had the freedom to do it. And, and it might go, well, you know, well, that person's been walking with God for 30, 40 years. If they can do it, I must be able to do it. And, they, and they're struggling with it. They haven't got the liberty. And they're thinking it's wrong, but yet the older brother in, you know, or sister in Christ can do it. So it must be okay. And then they end up sinning because they don't have the liberty to do it. And I heard a really interesting thing on one of the pastors on the radio said, if you have to ask whether you can do something or not scripturally, you can't. Okay? If you're questioning it in your mind and you have to question and ask somebody, can I do it, then the answer is no, you can't. Because if you really have the liberty to do something, you're going to know that you can. Because you're going to know that God has given you the freedom to do it. And that would go the eating of the meat offered to the idols, the, the drinking, the smoking, whatever it might be that's not a thou shalt not in the Bible. There are certain things you cannot do, period. No matter how much liberty you think you have, you, you can't go out and kill somebody, you can't go out and commit murder, you cannot commit adultery, fornication, homosexual acts, you know. There are certain things you cannot do because God says don't do them. They are sin. No matter what you think about them, they are sin. There's a whole multitude of things that may or may not be sin. Things like uh, smoking, uh, you know, eating the, eating the meat. You know, there's a whole, things, a whole bunch of things. It might, you know, in our neighborhood, it would be gambling because we're so close to the gambling facilities. You know, is gambling a wise thing to do? Not really. You know, if you get addicted on it, it's really bad. You know, is it a sin? Not necessarily depending on how you're doing it. I mean, it's, you're going to have to go before God and say, God, what do you want me to do where you stand on this and work on it? Now, if you had the freedom to, let's stick with gambling, you had the freedom to go gambling, but it causes somebody else who has a problem with it thinking it's bad, don't do it. But there is no verse that says thou shalt not gamble. Now, there's lots of verses that say don't get, don't get wealthy quickly and all these other things. There's all kinds of principles you can put to it. You know, there's all kinds of principles you can say to somebody who's smoking, you know, then God can say, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't, don't defile the temple, don't, don't do this, don't do that. There's all kinds of principles that God can say, okay, I want you to apply to this, but you can't take those principles you've been given and apply them to somebody else's life. But again, you've got to make sure that you're, you're teaching them the principles that keep you from doing it. And then it's going to be between them and God on what they're going to do from that point. Okay. Now there's a lot of thou shalt not, you know, and we went over a number of them, you know, gluttony is a is a sin, drunkenness is a sin. Okay? Eating food, eating food is not a, a sin, drinking is not a sin, but going to the extreme is a sin. But you understand the whole principles are what has God taught you? And for each individual, as long as there's not a thou shalt not, there will be things that I can do that you can't do that I can't do that you can do because of what God has convicted me of. And the longer I walk with God, the greater those principles are going to be applied to my life in either direction. Because I'm going to live under grace and say, okay, it's not a problem for me to do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, 
and it's very individualized. And this is why God says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, there's only one way to get saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. But my sanctification part of it is how, God, how, how are we applying these scriptures? You know, I was, and I've shared with you, you know, there was a time long before Obama and the Bushes that I was criti very critical of a particular president. And God says, you know, uh, here's some verses for you to think of. <laughs> you know, and I'm going, okay, uh, no, I'm not praying for him. No, I don't like the man. I don't even give him any honor. Uh, and God says, you know, you're going to change the way you're thinking. And I had to change the way I'm thinking, and that's applied to every president <laughs> since then. Some that I've liked, some that I don't like. Uh, but, you know, this is... But I go tell you, you can't do this because of what God told me? No, because it's going to be very individualized for each person. So we want to, be, we want to look at those things. He goes, but we're not to give offense. And the reason we don't give offense is so that God's ministry is not blamed. All right? How I live my life in front of other people matter. It matters. You know, and I've shared with people... You know, the lost world is looking at us. When we say we're a Christian, the lost world looks at us and says, is this person generally honorable? Do they pay their bills? Do they, do they respect the government? Do they pay their taxes? Do they, you know, are they liars? Are they cheaters? Are they, uh, are they honest people? You know, and unfortunately, the world holds us to a much higher standard than we as Christians hold ourselves to. You know, probably too high a standard, okay? They expect us to be perfect and we'll never be perfect. Now, we as Christians say we're sinners saved by grace and that, you know, that gives us a lot of room to, to make mistakes. But we've got to keep in mind, we're living in front of people that are looking at us and saying, well, what kind of person are you? The saddest thing that we have right now is that the divorce rate amongst Christians is higher than the rest of the, rest of the world. You know, that's a sad statement when God says, I hate divorce, and yet Christians have a very high rate of divorce. Now, there's a flip side of that, too, is Christians are pretty much the only ones getting married in the first place. <laughs> so it almost is guaranteed that there'll be more of them that might divorce when they get. But again, it's still sad that they're getting married, making vows before God, and then choosing to dishonor their vows without proper grounds of divorce. And remember, there is a scriptural grounds for divorce, and that's adultery. It's not a requirement if, there, if there's an adulterous relationship, but that's the only grounds for a biblical divorce. And this is why when I've talked to people who wanted me to perform a marriage, I told them there's only one marriage that I will do in Arizona, and that is a Arizona covenant marriage, which means that you're agreeing to God's way of doing it. You can't get married, you can't get divorced without adultery being present. So anyway, we're to, to not bring blame upon the ministry but in all things, approving ourselves or commending ourselves to other people, making people know that we're following God. Okay, and this is that but. You know, he starts out, we're bringing blame on the cross, but we're to commend ourselves. People should be able to look at you and say, you know, maybe not a perfect person, but that person is different. They may not even be able to say Christian. They may not even understand what that is. Uh, and that's why I use the term, you know, the world thinks we're crazy anyway, so we might as well prove to them that we're crazy and you know, crazy in love with God. Oh, there you go. Okay, 
because they already think we're strange and weird because you know we're not we don't get upset about things you know if we're following God and we're not we're not trying to make everybody pay for everything they've done and we kind of love people we're forgiving of people the world thinks all of that stuff is strange how can you forgive that person because God forgave me how can you love that person because God loves me how can you be so forgiving because God God forgave me you know the world thinks we're strange and we are we are strange to this world. Now, we're not strange to God. We're not strange to his image. But to the world, they look at us and say, you guys are just weird. And you know what? I'm glad to take that. I'm glad to be weird from the world's point of view. You know, I don't want to be like the world. Because you know, everything I see about the world isn't fun to be around. Uh, I go to you know, family parties and everything, and half the people are drunk, and I get out of it as fast as possible. You know, I hang around Christian groups where everybody's having a fun time, and they're still in their right mind and their right senses, and and going, you know, this is, <laughs> this is this is the way life's supposed to be. Okay, uh, but you know, we're we're very we're we're to be that. And he goes, we're to approve ourselves as ministers of God, and then he gives this long list of what how we how we prove ourselves. He starts out with. In patience, and patience—that's you know the, the idea of being constant, enduring. Okay, in in patience, you know, and this is something that, or in much patience, it even says, and patience is something that is not a human quality uh, by in the flesh. Most of us are not patient. We we want something and we want it yesterday. We don't even want it now. We want it. We want it. We want that obedience yesterday. You know, pretend I told you yesterday to be obedient and start like, you know, start immediately. You know, God, I want this and I want it yesterday. I don't even want it today, God. I want it yesterday. You know, we might be patient enough to say today. Some of us have kids that ain't going But uh, we're to start with, and this is interesting, he starts with patience. And then he says, in afflictions. And afflictions means pressing and, and being narrowly confined. God does this a lot with us. He did it a lot with Paul. All kinds of pressure. And this is, when we're under pressure, we need to turn to God and say, God, I need your help. And it goes back to our verse that we're memorizing. You know, all things, all, you know, there hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man, but God is faithful, who will provide a way of escape. And that way of escape is Jesus Christ. And as I've shared many, many times, Every temptation we face is designed to break our flesh. Okay? We will not be broken spiritually because we are in Christ. And he gives us the power to get through any temptation. But every temptation we face, every trial we face, every thing we face is designed to break our flesh. If we're dwelling in our flesh, it is not crucified, we're not living in Christ, we will fail every time. Because God does not want our flesh to be successful. All right? He, Satan does. And Satan wants our flesh to be, but you know, he's being used by God to, to break us because he really doesn't want our flesh to be successful either. Because he comes at us saying, well, you know, if you do this sin, God will forgive you. You know, you're under grace. You know, you, he gets us to presume upon grace. We commit the sin. And what happens? You, you think about oh, how you're going to be forgiven you know, in your mind. And all of a sudden, you get condemned. 
Because then Satan comes along, what an awful person you are. How could you, how could you have done that to the one you love? You know, you're going to be able to be forgiven, and we go into it, think we can be, and then he just crushes us with an attack of saying how, how unwise we are and how stupid we are and how we don't love God and you know, how can God love us when, we're, when we're, we're violating his laws. And you know, this is what every sin is done. It is to destroy our flesh. Our, if we try to do it in the flesh, we will fail, always. And it is very true. I can do nothing of myself, but with Christ, I can do all things. And that includes getting through temptation. And if you don't believe me, just look at many of these great spiritual leaders who have fallen to sin. Okay, Building up big churches, great churches. And I can guarantee you most of them have fallen into adulterous relationships. And I can guarantee when they started, they're going, I love my wife so much, I would never commit adultery. And they let their guard down and all of a sudden Satan just hits them and hits them and hits them and they start walking in the flesh. And once you start walking in the flesh, it's pretty easy to fall. Because one thing, you're being attacked so heavily. If you want to draw Satan's ire and his attention, just start doing things for God. And all of a sudden you'll start getting more attention. You know, and it's kind of, if you've ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, it starts out with this little junior demon watching this guy, and the guy gets saved, and he goes, and his, and his, and his boss above him goes, now you're really in trouble, because now you've got to keep him away from God. And, and you know, as the time goes on, they're giving him more and more advice and more and more attacks. You know, Satan doesn't care if, you know, if you're not saved, doesn't care what you do. You can go to church all you want. You can, you can pretend to be good. He doesn't care because you're going to hell and it doesn't matter to him. You get saved. As long as you just sit in the pew and do nothing, okay, he's lost you, but he really doesn't care. You're not a threat to the kingdom. Start teaching, start giving the gospel, start witnessing. All of a sudden, you're a threat. And the more, you, more influence you gain and the more you desire to serve God, the more of a threat you're going to be and the more you're going to draw attention. I do not judge these pastors and, and spiritual leaders who fall. I don't know if they were tested a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times before they fell. I might have fallen long before they had fallen, even though I would think I would never fall. You know, I'm not going to judge them. I'm not their judge. All I can say is, I'm sorry that, that you fell. You know, uh, God loves you. He can forgive you, and he can, and he can redeem you. And this is what happens. When you start doing things for God, things happen. When churches start moving for God, things happen. When towns start changing to be more godly because God is moving and a church is moving through it, you know, God, a church is moving and changing the town, Satan moves against it. You know, it's been amazing as I've watched Chloride. We were starting to see progress to, away from all the, a lot of the things that were going on around here, and all of a sudden we're coming back, the, a lot of these things are coming back with a vengeance, and it, it doesn't surprise me. It really doesn't surprise me because Satan does not want to lose ground any more than any other army is going to lose, you know, lose ground willingly. And we just need to love people and, and keep lifting up the light and let God be victorious in the long run. And love people and, and minister to them and, and be kind to them. But always remember we're in a spiritual battle and we will be in a spiritual battle until the day we die. 
And every time we gain a little bit of ground, Satan is going to send more enemy against it. And as we gain ground, he'll send a little more experienced, <laughs> you know, a little, little, little stronger, okay? In a, in a real battle, in a major physical battle, if you start beating a particular gen, uh, the colonel or general, and you're starting to make progress in there, they'll send a more experienced general in there to take over that area and say, okay, we're going to send somebody who's better than this other guy. And Satan does the same thing. So in affliction, in necessities, which means this is rules that are imposed upon us by law or custom. And Paul is going, you know, there's certain things that, whether they're good or not, they're put on us. And I've talked about this. There are a lot of churches that have a whole lot of unwritten rules for their church. Okay? And if you're going to be part of that church, you better obey those unwritten rules. And sometimes they're written. Back in the 50s and 60s, you know, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't go to movies, you don't play cards, you, you, women, you wear your dresses, men, you wear your suit and ties, men, you have short hair, women, you have your long hair. And there was these long lists, and as long as you did all, those, all these long rules, you were okay with God. None of them had anything to do with God, but you know, long list rules that says this is what you're supposed to live by. Paul had certain rules put on him because the Jews were looking at him as a former Jew and saying, how are you living? And yet he's living by grace amongst the Gentiles in many cases. They were proven in patience, in affliction, in necessities, in distresses, which again, pressures and trials, by in stripes, in beatings in other words, in imprisonments, in tumults, which are riots, in labors, in your, in your hard work, in watchings and imprisonments, again, uh, in fasting. Okay, so Paul's saying, we're going to prove him by all the troubles we go through. All right, and this is a list of troubles. If you look at these, they're all troublesome things that happened. What really proves us to be walking with Christ is how do we handle the trials of life? Okay. What do we do? Do we break under the trials or do we stand before God and say, God, you're doing a great thing? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm not really happy that I'm in so much pressure and everybody's mad at me and I'm, I'm being beat. But you remember, what, did, what have we said that the, Paul, the apostles kept saying? Every time they got thrown into prison, every time they got beat, they say, thank God I'm worthy of suffering for Christ. That is not the American attitude of, toward suffering for most Christians. You know, most Christians go, why me? Mm -hmm. And God's saying, uh, suffering is part of, part of being a Christian. You know, we expect to be getting around and not having any problems. And there's so many churches that even teach that idea. And yet that is not a biblical idea. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And then he gets into a more positive side of these things. He goes in verse 6, by pureness. And this means to be chaste, okay? It's referring to sexual purity in this word, what he's talking about. By knowledge, and here the knowledge on it is general knowledge. The Greeks have three words for knowledge, and this one is just general knowledge. God will teach us knowledge. By long-suffering, being slow to ask or seek for revenge. Uh, you know, and this is something that's important. When we're walking with God, 
we're, we're to be patient with people. We're to be kind to people. We're not supposed to be seeking their, their destruction. Okay, there are times when people need to be, be punished, but you know, my statement on this is probably 90 to 90%, 99% of the time, we're to let God be our defense and let him do what needs to be done rather than me saying, God, I I'm, I'm just can't, can't wait for you to go get them, God. They deserve it. Yes, of course they deserve it. But so do I. I deserve punishment, so you know, I, if I want God to be merciful to me, I should be able to extend mercy to those that are offending me. Because that's what God says, long-suffering. By kindness. Oh, kindness, you know, just, just to be kind to people. Then he goes, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He's the one that ultimately gives us the strength to do all these things. You know, he could have just said by the Holy Spirit and left all the other parts out. But he really wanted to say, okay, you need the Holy Spirit because he's your strength, but this is what you're going to do. The Holy Spirit's going to work out, and you're going to be pure. You're going to have knowledge. You're going to have long-suffering. You're going to be kindness. And then by love, unfeigned, undisguised, you know, people see our love one for another. Jesus said, you'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. The sad thing is, in many churches, there's no love being shown in many churches or by Christians to other Christians. And yet that's supposed to be the mark that says we're his and we belong to him because we love others the way he loves. Now again, we can't be perfect. We'll, we'll never be perfect about all of this. But it should be the mark of our life. And I hope you understand what I say when I, it's our mark, you know, we should be making progress. We should be getting better at it over time. We should become more loving, not less loving or unloving over time. We should be becoming more like God over time. You know, I wish we could be perfect. We're not going to be perfect. Not until the day we die or the day we're raptured from this world, we are not going to be perfect. But each year, I should be able to look at my life and say, or each day, but I, I use years because it's easier to look back over a year. Each year, I should be able to look back and say, yes, I love people better than, you know, this year than I did at the end of last year. I, I am more forgiving to people. I am more trusting in God. I, you know, if you're not in, you know, moving forward, then you have to kind of look and say, God, what's going on in my life? What is not right in my life? How, how come I am not seeing you move in my life? And one of the two answers is either I don't know him at all, and I'm not even in his family, or I'm being so stubborn and, and rebellious that I'm not allowing him to work. I'm not surrendering my life to him. And we need to do one of those two things, and that's what he's talking about this. And he says, by the word of truth. You know, if we truly want to know what's going on in our life, how do we get it? We get into God's word. We study his word. You know, if we really want to develop our life, you know, get our faith with God, it comes through the God's word. You know, why? Because that's how he talks to us. <laughs> okay? That's how he talks to us is through his word. And the one thing I can tell people, because I get to talk to lots of people, goes, well, God told me such and such. I'm going, okay, does that match up with God's word? Well, God told me I could, t could go out and punish this person. <laughs> I'm going, uh, let's take a look at what God says about this. <laughs> okay, uh, you're listening to your flesh really well. Your flesh wants to punish them. But God says, 
I will take revenge. I will be the one who goes, you know, I don't see that point of view. Let's take it a little simpler. A woman comes up and wants counsel. She wants to get divorced from her husband because they just don't love each other anymore. And you go, okay, well, God told me I could get divorced. I had the grace to get divorced. And go, well, let's look at what the Bible says. Okay, do you have grounds, biblical grounds for divorce? Did, did that individual commit adultery? No, not that I'm aware. Then you do not have grounds for divorce. Uh, teenagers coming together, you know, I really think I should be, God's telling me I should get married to this person. Are they a Christian? Well, I don't think so. Then God's not telling you to, to get married to them. Okay, we look at God's word and say, what does God say? If we think we're hearing from God and it goes against God's word, we're not hearing from God. Okay, plain and simple. You know, if it goes against his written word, we're not hearing from him. We're hearing something, but we're not hearing God. And most likely, we're hearing our flesh. All right? One of the things I look at is if I'm thinking I'm hearing God's word and I think it's something that I want to do, I'm not willing to say it's God's word. And even if it doesn't go against scripture, because if my flesh wants to do it or if I want to do it, it may or may not be God, but I'm not going to say, I heard from God. I'm just going to say, I think this is a good idea, and I think I'm going to do it. Now, if I'm hearing from God, and it matches his word, and it's something I don't want to do, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that God is talking to me. When God tells me to go love that person and you know, that's been mean to me and nasty to me, and I don't want to do it, it matches God's word, <laughs> then I know that God's telling me to go love that person and be, be kind to them. All right, so you know it's hard sometimes to figure out what God is wanting us to do, but if it's something that's totally against our nature and it matches the Bible, it's probably God telling us to do it. If I want to do it and it matches the Bible, probably it could be God, but I'd be careful saying it was God, because my flesh is kind of getting in the way. It's something I want to do. Uh, or my spirit, you know, the, the, the things that I've learned is wanting me. It may or may not be God, and I'm not going to grow. God told me. So what do you do when it's like that? You, you, you know you step, out, step out in faith. If it matches God's word, it's definitely not going to hurt you to be obedient to what you're wanting to do. If it's against God's word, don't do it. Plain and simple. Uh, and this is why it's important we go back to his word. One of the greatest things I loved about what my dad did when I was growing up is everything went back to the word. Okay, he kept going, well, dad, what do we do in this situation? Okay, let's see what the Bible tells us, says to do. And we'd open up the word. He's the one that taught me to go back to the word in a very practical way. And it's very important. Let's go back to the word. God, what do you want me to do? You know, and get into the word. If it matches God's word, I'm on safe ground to step out into it. Whether he's actually told me to or not, I'm on safe ground to step out in his word because of being obedient, just plain obedient to his word. All right? When Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego stood up and didn't bow down before the idol, they had a strong word of God. Don't bow down, don't have any other gods before me. And they stayed standing. Daniel, on the other hand, was told they made a law not to pray to any other gods. There's not really a verse that says you must pray to God every day, three times a day. But he did not change. He says, I'm still going to honor God. I'm still going to place him first. He, did, he took principles and applied them. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a law from God, don't bow down. Daniel says, this is my lifestyle. God, I'm, I'm honoring God and I'm putting him first. You know, not quite, a, not quite a verse in the Bible that tells me pray three times a day, but I'm going to lift God up and he stood on his principles and God protected him. Okay, and I'm not saying God talked to him or didn't talk to him, he just stood on his principles on what he said, this is what God's telling me to do. And there are times when we stand on the principles and we say, I'm going to take what comes my way. The apostle said, we've got to obey God rather than man. There was no verse in the Bible before that that said, obey God rather than man. But there was principles all through the scripture of obey God rather than man. So they stood on a principle of God and God honored their, their stance. Okay, so we want to say, is it, is it scriptural? Can I make my case in liberty to stand or not stand or go forward or not going forward? Again, there are certain things you can say, no, they're absolutely not right. The incidence of saying, I'm going to go get married and they're not a Christian is wrong. It's not, not, not to happen. Getting divorced from somebody when you don't have scriptural, biblical grounds is wrong. Murdering somebody is wrong. Okay, stealing from somebody is wrong. No matter how you want to justify it, it's still wrong. So there's certain things we look at the Bible and say, it's wrong. There's not even a question. I don't even have to come to me and ask, you know, well, I want to pray, I want to pray on whether I should marry this person or are they, are they a Christian. Nope, don't, need to, don't even need to pray about it. It is very tough when you start getting into those little fine nuances of what, where are you? How do you apply the details of a verse becomes where honest questions occur. Honest questions occur when there's these little details of do you do this or do you do that? And again, going back to is there a strong thou shalt not? It says don't be unequally yoked, but what does it mean to be unequally yoked? We know clearly is in context that it's talking about saved and unsaved. But there's a lot of people who take it a lot deeper, and I tend to be one of those. Okay, that says, you know, if somebody's a very strong Christian, reading their Bible, going to church five times a week, you know, five times a week, and you've got another person who's barely going to church one time, one time a week, you're probably unequally yoked. Because who's going to make the decision, you know, who's going to go to church? How, how is that going to work out uh, as you go forward? All right, we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to learn and listen for, and study. Lord, help us to learn to follow you in the details of our life. Help us to learn to look at the word and see how you would want us to live. And guide us and teach us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.